You were telling us earlier that you're actually able to cash out refi and reuse that money too. So this is a business. So for anyone to do a cash out refi, they need to see at least two years of the business running. They want to see what the NOI is and how, the, and a lot, some of it's subjective. It's like, hey, how did the team do? How, like, what's the team on the ground? And our model is very different than a lot of the care homes right now, because like I said, there a lot of them are owner operators. They don't have our hierarchy there. So we have, you know, an operations manager. He's my partner. So he has an administrator that, manages the managers, the managers manage the caregivers. So there's this whole hierarchy in these homes that we have. So what that ends up meaning is that we end up having a more efficient structure. We can use economies of scale. We can use volume discounts and really increase the NOI just by reducing operational costs. Have you ever dreamed of owning a vacation home? What if it could double as an investment property that makes you money and helps you save on taxes? Our new course, Accelerating Wealth Short-Term Rental Blueprint, will teach you how to purchase and set up your short-term rental the right way. Learn more about the course at semiretiredmd.com slash str hyphen course. This episode is sponsored by our brand new course called Fast Fire Bookkeeping for Real Estate Investors. Do you have a pile of receipts and a bunch of statements that are stacking up in your office and the pile isn't getting any smaller? Are your rental properties getting you closer to financial freedom? Do you even know how your properties are performing? Well, the answer to your problem is doing your books the right way, and that's what our course is about. We'll teach you how to set up your books the right way, not just for tax time, but also so you can unlock the insights that will help you maximize your cash flow. For more information or to sign up, Go to semiretiredmd.com forward slash fast fire bookkeeping. Welcome to the Doctors Building Wealth Podcast, the place where we talk about the strategies, habits, and mindset that separate wealthy docs from those who are not. We're your hosts, Leiti and Kenji. Today, we're really excited to have Dr. Sendhil Krishnan here, who is going to talk about a topic uh, that I think a lot of people are going to be interested in, and we're going to talk about residential assisted living. Hey, Sendhil, how are you? Good, guys. How are you guys doing? Awesome. Well, we're really excited to have you here, and I know you have a lot of experience in real estate in general, so maybe we'll start out by asking who you are. Tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into real estate in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. So I practice uh, general and interventional cardiology in Orange County. So uh, my father was an interventionalist. My brother became an interventionalist. I like to say that they kind of copied me beforehand. (laughs) But I kind of really got into real estate as sort of an accidental landlord. We just sort of had a property out here in California. My dad decided to buy a fourplex out here and just left me with the management. And it was just, I'll just say it was just a disaster for me. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know how to manage anything. I didn't know like, you know, what forced appreciation or how to add value. I didn't know any of these things that you guys talk about a lot. So I just sort of had this, just got frustrated. And I said, you know, there's got to be something better out there. I really wanted to do something in real estate, but this just was a nightmare owning something in California. So I got rid of that property and I did a 1031 exchange into, into basically a second home in Arizona. 
And the reason I did that was basically I had started to learn and understand about residential assisted living. So residential assisted living is, is just basically assisted living care homes, but inside of a residence. So it falls in this, this little niche where you have a high flowing cash flowing asset that's built inside of a, basically a single family home. So I took that property and essentially it took me about a year, year and a half to get it fully renovated and licensed into a care home. And this was approximately July, 2019. So I've got a management team. I partnered with an individual out there who had found was also doing the same thing, had just kind of put his foot into this RAL market. So we partnered and we just sort of combined forces and grew from there. You know? So that was basically that in a nutshell. Apart from that, you know, I've done quite a bit of different stuff along the side, but definitely my passion and niche has sort of been growing out this RAL market for me and just kind of getting more and more involved and figuring out ways as a physician, hey, how can I bring value to these residents, which ultimately, you know, helps helps us as a company and as a brand and as a reputation. Amazing. Yeah, I know a lot of our listeners are really interested in looking in different niches within real estate. So that's why we really wanted you here because you're, you know, a physician expert now in residential assisted living. And so I was wondering how is it you overcame that as initial fears? Like maybe you didn't have a lot because you had done a lot of real estate before, but anytime I think you enter something totally new, there's some initial trepidation. So how were you able to manage yourself with that? Yeah, honestly, the problem with me is that I tend to jump in first and then think later. So I often have the opposite of analysis paralysis. I don't, I don't get way down. I, I sort of look and say, hey, listen, if other people are doing, I look at this, you know, and I say, you know, there's all these kids on bigger pockets. They're in there like 50, like, you know, they're 18 and 20s and they're making like buku. If they can do it, what's stopping me from doing it? So that's sort of always been my mentality. It's like, there's a way to figure it out. But if I overthink things, then I'm never going to jump into it. But obviously, but I think like, you know, absolutely getting education about it. And there's so many resources out there free resources that you can learn to understand. And, you know, I, and if people are interested, they can look on bigger pockets and search some of my prior posts where I talk about my journey and what I would do differently and how I would get educated now. Because, you know, I mean, there's a lot of resources, but there's a lot of ways to connect to people that are doing it already. And they would be happy to connect, you know. And especially if you are a physician or in the healthcare field, you automatically have a leg up because a lot of these operators are, are just mom and pop operators, you know, they don't have a medical background and they really want to leverage and use that experience that physicians can bring to the table because they know just how invaluable it is. So just by partnering with say a care home manager is enough to get a lot of people started, you know, and they can do that right there in their communities. Can you define for us what you mean by residential assisted living? Because when I you know, think of my time as a hospitalist, you know, when we discharge somebody, we'll discharge them to assisted living, which is some big facility. And, you know, they have an apartment in that facility, but there's not much caregiving going on. Then we also have adult family homes, which are smaller homes with like, you know, six residents. So those are the two options I often think about. Uh, wh where does this kind of fall in there? Or, or is it something? Totally right. Different? There's different, different levels of care. So you know, obviously you have your, your hospitals and you have your skilled nursing facilities or nursing homes, things like that. So assisted living is a non-medical facility. So 
It's basically, it's essentially individuals, usually elderly or disabled, that require supervision needs or directed needs or some kind of personal needs. They may need help walking to the table. They may need help bathing or showering. So it's really just that basic having someone there 24-7. So it's essentially the same as assisted living, like the large commercial facilities, except we're in a residential care home setting, you know, adult, uh, adult family. I mean, those can mean a lot of different things. Those could mean for individuals that have developmental delays. It could mean uh, patients. I mean, we're not talking about sober living, but that's a, that's a whole nother segment and niche in itself. There's, you know, individuals that just need room and board, you know, they, they may get state funded Medicaid or whatever it is like the program for housing. And so, but they're more independent. We're talking about people that require assistance on a day-to-day basis. Either they're getting too old, either they're having memory problems, either they're getting other issues, but it's it's basically caregivers there. So the, the, the question is, well, what's the advantage of being in a care home versus a big box facility? And a lot of advantages is one, especially in, during the pandemic, this was really became an issue, right? So uh, obviously there was there was more COVID running around through these ALFs, which actually resulted in us getting a lot of residents coming out of these ALFs and into our homes mm. because they knew that we were much closer. We had much more control of the COVID environment. You know, some of our caregivers volunteered to live in the house. You know, these, and this is just speaks to just how wonderful the team is, but they chose to live in our house where as they have their own families that they needed to tend to, but they realized that going in and out of the house would expose our residents to, to more COVID. So the, the uh, caregiver to staff ratio is much smaller than it is in a large facility. It's much more personalized attention. You know, we can do a lot more things. We can do more outings or personalized meals or more entertainment. So there's a lot of different things you can do in a, inside of a residential care home that's very hard to do at a big box facility. So can, can you talk to us using one of your properties as an example of what that looks like in a day-to-day? I mean, do you have six residents? How many staff do you have? What what does a day look like in one of the properties? Yeah, so one of the, the, the first home that, that I was involved in, we call it the Valencia home. And so it's it's actually women only now. So it's kind of, when we first started, it was, you know, most of the residents are going to be women just because of demographics and things like that. But it, now we've decided like they, they just love the fact that it's women only. So families also like that. Now, all the other homes are co-ed, but this one just happens to be like that. So we have 10 residents there and we have about two to three daytime caregiver staff that come in on a, on a, like on a shift basis. And there's usually one person on awake overnight. So there's 24-7 care around the clock. So, I mean, their schedule is kind of pretty much the same. They'll do, they'll wake up, they'll eat breakfast, they'll have like an activity session. Maybe they'll do yoga, a few walks. Most of the day, they're just parked in front of the TV, like, you know, just chilling out or doing knitting or whatever it is. But then in the evening times, they have a little happy hour. They have a little fun activity plan every day. They And then uh, that's about it. You know, the caregivers are responsible for not only taking their vitals every day, which is one thing that we've implemented, but also administering their medications and whatever else that they may need. 
And are you having a certain level of severity of illness in this, in your homes as well? Like, do you say like, you know, you can't be hospitalized more than five times a year or is there, are there limits like that or not really? No, not necessarily, but we do take into account the level of care that they would require. So, and that's usually done. So that would be done by the manager of the home. So they're usually responsible for assessing the patient or the resident before they arrive into the home. So a lot of these referrals are coming from hospitals or skilled nursing facilities or a rehab center. So it may have been grandma broke her hip and now she's not safe to come home yet, but at the same time, she doesn't need to continue staying at the rehab facility. So that assessment will be done by the manager and we'll see if it's appropriate for our home. So if it's someone that's like 450 pounds and can barely walk it out of bed, they may not be a good fit because we're going to need more than two caregivers or, you know, if there's only one overnight, they, they're probably not going to be a good fit. But it's someone that needs help with eating and, you know, showering and bathing, they're more of an appropriate fit. So it really depends on their spectrum. You know, we take patients that are on hospice, you know, and, and we take patients and, and residents and you know, the average time that they spend in our homes are at least a year and a half before they pass. So let's talk about the real estate. (laughs) So um, how do you choose the homes you're going to buy? And are there limits on how many residents you can have in one area versus another state, for example? Yeah, absolutely. So um, that second question first. So a lot of different states or a lot of states have their own rules and regulations as it comes down to. And a great place to get started is through the, uh, the Department of Health or health, like whatever it is in, in that state for that state, because they're usually the licensing body. So in California, they're called RCFEs, Residential Care Facilities for the Elderly. And you can only have six. Okay, You can get waivers and you can get more residents in there. But then you have to do a lot of things to your home, which is get like um, you probably got to put a commercial kitchen in or you got to get fire sprinkler systems installed throughout. So that limit in Arizona is 10. Okay, in, in Texas, it's crazy. It's like 16. So you can have 16 people in one single family home. So it's different for every state. So when I initially started out, I was looking in, in Orange County. I really wanted. I mean, there's there's like. 600, 800 of these homes already in this county, right? You could be living next door to one and you wouldn't even know it because they're probably the best tenants to have, you know, it's lights out by eight, there's no parties, like, you know, so there's a lot of homes, but the problem is like the real estate in California is just cost prohibitive. And these are done by owner operators. So they're essentially full-time caregivers at these facilities. And really, there's not a lot of margin if you can only have six residents. So expanding in Arizona made a lot more sense for us because we can have 10 residents. Real estate is cheaper and, you know, cost of services and goods are a lot cheaper out there than than compared to California. And plus licensing, licensing time in Arizona is about a third what it is in California. You know, if I if I got a house purchased it here and renovated it and got got it ready to go, like checked off by the fire safety department and the code and whatever. It would take me another year (laughs) before I could open it as a care home. So it's just very, very difficult to do it out here in California. So going back to the real estate side, the way that I did the original home, like the original care home, and this is the great thing about RELs because there's so many loan options available because a lot of people are honestly confused. Like a lot of lenders, I mean, 
don't know how to treat this niche. They don't know if it's a commercial niche or if it's a residential niche because you have a business inside of a home and the home could just be a regular home. So what, the way that I did it for that one was I 1031 into the home, spent cash to do the complete renovation. It was a five bedroom home when we began, but it ended up being a 10 bedroom, 11 bathroom home when we finished. Wow. And it was only because the the layout was all single. I mean, it was ranch style, but it had a two car garage and an RV garage all attached under roof. So I was able to take that whole space and convert it into additional five bedrooms with like five or six bathrooms. So that house was perfect for converting into a residential assisted living. So not all homes have to be converted into 10 bedrooms. You know, it's ideal if you can get to that level because your economies of scale really play out. You know, you can get massive cash flow from from one property. But, you know, you can do you can stop at five bedrooms or six bedrooms. You can have bedrooms that are shared for residents, you know, so you can you can do all sorts of things. Uh, you can stop wherever, you, you know, whatever number you want to stop at. But if you can get closer to 10 bedrooms and especially if they're private, you can definitely charge a lot more. And that's really what families want, you know. There's a lot of guilt that comes into placing mom or dad into these homes. So they really want to find a facility that's nice and bright and cheery. You know what I'm saying? Like they don't want to put them in like, oh, it's a dingy place. There's no private bathroom. And oh, plus it's shared. You know, it's a better feeling when you walk into some of these homes and it's like big and spacious, you know, and that's what you're looking for. You talked to us about some of the numbers in terms of how much you get per resident for like, let's say a private room. Yeah, so it it also depends on where you are in the and geographically. So we have homes in more affluent areas in Scottsdale, and some we have in more like I would say you know middle class, upper middle class in Phoenix. So Phoenix and Scottsdale are very diverse markets, and in fact, in Phoenix, if if it's a very patchy market from one neighborhood to a next, home prices can vastly vary. Right. So a lot of it depends on kind of where you are right in that neighborhood. So we have on our lower end, our homes are about 3000 per month per resident. And so if that's 10 bedrooms, you're talking about a gross of like 30,000 per month. So when you look at overhead, you're talking about a 50 to 55 percent margin as far as like, you know, we're essentially taking care of everything. Right. We take care of food. We're taking care of entertainment. We're taking care of not only the real estate liability and insurance, but also the business liability and insurance, taking care of licensing, and of course, payroll for the caregivers, which is probably going to be the biggest expense. So when you take that out, so on the lower hand, you're talking about anywhere from 10 to 15,000 a month, as far as cash flow. But on the higher hand, we have some of our homes. So like the Valencia home I was telling you about, uh, it's in a more affluent area. It's in North Scottsdale. It's, it's surrounded by horse communities. I would say it's older money. You know, it's a lot of generational wealth out there. So these homes are tend to be, you know, gorgeous and expansive, you know. So there we we're charging about six to seven thousand per resident per per room. And that's really because there's just not a lot of care homes out there. And that's what these homes command out there. So overall, if you look at the annualized thing on, on a home such as that, you're talking about annualized of six hundred to seven hundred K overhead 50%. So essentially about 250 to 300. Incredible cash flow. Yeah, for sure. And when you say 50% margin, is that before uh, you pay the mortgage 
I loosely include that. It all depends because the mortgage products could be different. So uh, we can talk about the loan options. So one of the things is, so I alluded to is a lot of these, you can buy these as a second home, right? And convert them, not tell your lender that you're going to turn it into a care home and continue to pay the mortgage as a single family home. As long as they're getting a check, they don't really care. You know, it doesn't matter, right, for them. So you can get it as, as, as a residential uh, thing. You can get it as a commercial property, right, because if it has a business. But in that case, you would have to purchase the existing business. Like, it would have to be a running as a care home, which you're purchasing along with the real estate. Or one of the more attractive options is an SBA option where, you know, the SBA is like fantastic with this. Well, they'll not only lend you about like for the real estate, but they'll lend on the working capital, like to purchase the business option, but they'll also lend money for a construction loan. So they're one of the few products out there that will do all three of these because you really can't find that with, with many of the other lenders. It's been really hard for us to do that. So SBA is a very attractive option, especially and this is the whole play. Like if you're if you're getting into this space and you don't want to start from scratch, you can buy an existing care home with the business. But as long as there's a value at play, like you know, sometimes all it takes is these homes have been run down from years of like you know the same owner operator. They just get tired. They don't have money or capital to put into renovations. So if you just go in there and just renovate the place and you make it look nicer, you can actually bring up the, the rents in that area to at least to market or even set the, set the market rate in that area. And SBA would have helped you do uh, cover at least 75 to 80% of that entire value of that. Have you ever dreamed of owning a vacation home? What if it could double as an investment property that makes you money and helps you save on taxes? Our new course, Accelerating Wealth, short-term rental blueprint will teach you how to purchase and set up your short-term rental the right way. Learn more about the course at semiretiredmd.com slash str hyphen course. This episode is brought to you by Dan Peck of Caliber Home Loans. If you're an experienced investor, you'll know just how important it is to have a lender who knows how to work with investors. Now we've been working with Dan and his team for over five years now, and he's our go-to whenever we need a residential loan for our investment properties. Now, if you're new to investing, you might not know this, but your lender can sometimes be the difference between getting a great deal or completely missing out on it because your lender couldn't close a deal. Now, I did want to point out that Dan can help you not only with your investment properties, but also if you're looking to buy a primary residence or a vacation home. So the next time you're looking for a residential lender, be sure to email Dan at semiretiredmd at caliberhomeloans.com to get a free consultation. Yeah, lots of opportunities for forced depreciation. We heard how you built out in garages and added extra bedrooms. That's amazing. But then, you know, they're businesses, right? And so you're increasing the cash flow by increasing the rents, and now they're worth a lot more. So um, you were telling us earlier that you're actually able to kind of cash out refi and reuse that money too. Yeah, absolutely. So, so this is a business. So for anyone to do a cash out refi, they need to see at least two years of the business running 
uh, they want to see what the NOI is and how you and how the, and a lot, some of it's subjective. It's like, hey, how did the team do? How like what's the team on the ground? You know, and like our our model is very different than a lot of the care homes right now because, like I said, there a lot of them are owner operators. They don't have a hierarchy. They're so we have you know an operations manager. He's my partner. So Jeff is one of my partners. So he's the operations partner. He has an administrator that manages the managers, the managers manage the caregivers. So there's this whole hierarchy in these homes that we have. So what that ends up meaning is that we end up having a more efficient structure. We can use economies of scale. We can use volume discounts and really increase the NOI just by reducing operational costs. You know, So we don't even have to charge more for these residents, but we can add a lot more value and services. And that's Anyway, I'm kind of diverting this. No, it's awesome. We can add, we can go back because I was going to segue into like the medical stuff of what you can do. But yeah, yeah. So if you have like two to three years of showing the business, you can essentially refinance that entire business along with the appreciated real estate. You get essentially all the money that you put back in, in from that property and you can use it to get another care home. So remember this this home that I originally got, I, I got by putting about twenty to twenty five percent down. You know, I I paid extra for for um, for the renovation side, the cash on that. But I mean, you're still talking about a property all in at a million dollars, financed, leveraged, of which only like you know thirty percent is actual equity. Going back to that forced appreciation, I, I'm still uh, trying to figure out when you said you're sometimes going in, fixing up the home and you're raising the rents to market, but what is the market? Are you able to set the rates yourself? Um, I thought a lot of this was government funded and they set the rates or they put caps. What is the, no, that's not the case. Okay. No, <laughs> no. So they there is subsidy programs like in Arizona, they have like you know, certain uh, individuals or elderly or, or eligible to a certain you know amount, which is which I believe is about twenty five hundred. So a lot of the existing homes in this market charge kind of around in that area twenty five hundred to three thousand, right? So you have this huge pool of care homes that are operating in this one market segmentation, but they're leaving out the fact that there's all these other private pay individuals. So a lot of these individuals have assets accumulated over the years that, you know, at the end of life, like what they, what do the kids do? They sell the homes. They use part of that money to take care of mom and dad, where, wherever they need or whatever, whatever uh, things they may need. And then uh, on top of that, then, so it's a market rate. So you can charge whatever you want. But like I said, in that geographical area, there's a certain rate that, you know, it could be three to 4,000 in this area. In this part of Scottsdale, it could be four to five thousand. So as long as you're not like a ridiculous outlier to justify that, you could you could be at the higher end of that spectrum. But many of these homes, like I said, you can the the great value at place to find these homes that are in these higher segments that have actually been performing down here, and it's simply a matter of you know just increasing the staff in there, increasing the caregivers, doing the renovation adding a few medical services, you know, and then now families are look at this place and say, oh, they really upped this place and they really changed it and brought it around, you know? So yeah, we want to keep our mom here now instead of taking them out and putting them somewhere else. Awesome. So let's make sure we make the time to talk about yeah. what differentiates you as a physician 
leading one of these care homes? Yeah. So my goal on the physician aspect, this is what really attracted me is because I didn't just want to have a passive investment. So, you know, as far as the day-to-day operations, that's all handled by my team out there. I live in California, they're in Arizona. What they do day-to-day, like, you know, they don't ask me anything. I don't, I don't tell them how to do their job. You know, they're adept at that. But the way that I wanted to get involved was like, hey, what can I do from, from a physician or a cardiology standpoint? What can I do for these residents while they're in our homes, you know? And a lot of them, you know, they, so the easiest thing that we've started is telemedicine, right? So they have access. So right now we, we have multiple physician partners on our team. So, and they're across different specialties. You know, we have a nephrologist. So if the caregivers have a question about the Foley bag turning red, it's, you know, in most homes, it would be a call to 911, send them to the ER. You know, it's a lot of burden for the residents, the family, the home, the family, you know, all of these things. But now it's like a quick phone call or it's a quick telemedicine appointment and say, hey, listen, no, maybe it's a simple UTI. We can prescribe this or wait till the morning. It's not an emergency. You know, my hope also as, as cardiology, I've been trying to implement uh, cardiac telemetry. So for any resident that went to a rehab or went to a hospital and comes back to the home, I'd like them to have a two-week like tele, live telemonitor that can transmit to my phone out here. So I can pick up, say, detect arrhythmias quickly. You know, I could detect uh, syncope because of bradycardia before it happens. So it's mitigating a lot of liability, but you're also helping out the resident, you know. None of these services are things that we would charge more for. It's not going to cost these residents anything out of pocket. But I mean, it's, but if they were to be done, uh, if, if it is a medical service, you know, physicians can bill Medicare directly. So our telemedicine providers live there locally and there are physicians that actually come visit in the homes. So, but they bill Medicare separately and they make, you know, whatever the revenue is for, for, for that separately. But we're looking at, you know, there's all these telehealth tech like that we can implement, you know, there's this crazy like toilet that you can implement into these homes that checks the labs as patients have their stool. Like, you know, it's like, you can tell them what their potassium is. Like, you know, it'll read off their glucose. Like, imagine you take a crap and you get a hand down. Your glucose levels are a little too high today. Like, you know, so there's all these things that we're exploring and and trying to implement. And we want to do that across our homes. So that's one of the goals. So mind you, like, remember this, this, has kind of grown rapidly in the last two years, right? I started my, I bought my first home like four years ago. It took me almost two years to get a license and renovated. So we opened doors on my first home in July of last year. Now we're up to about seven homes with 60 beds. And, you know, we're continuing to grow and expand. Wow, amazing. And I love that. Are you creating a brand? Uh, Because, you know, we're talking about building a business. And one of the things that can differentiate you is the fact that this is a, care home that is uh, uh, led by doctors and, and you have all these right. services. Have you noticed a, a kind of recognition, brand recognition, and also an in- increase in customer demand? Absolutely. And that's one of the things that we did over a year ago is we recognized the value of having physicians on board. And so our brand is called MD Senior Living. And the name there automatically shows that it's, you know, it's MDs with the senior living thing. So we, we get the word out. We do a monthly newsletter. So a physician on our team 
may do like a simple article. So I've done like cardiac health or about COVID and vaccinations, you know, the one that's coming out for next month is going to be about kidney stones. We've had stuff about Alzheimer's. So we, we keep an active presence and these newsletters are pushed out to all the referring agents and referral sources. You know, so we've, uh, because of this brand and reputation, we've won a couple of awards already for senior living, like best in senior living. So it's only awarded to like the top 1% of communities nationwide. So for the last two years, we've been able to get that. And mind you, we're, we're new and fresh to all of this, you know, but we've kind of, but the, the key has been like the systems and the team, like, you know, you have to keep the team happy. You know, we give them the independence because we know that they've done this. They're experienced caregivers. They're experienced managers. Our, our, um, our administrator was a hospice nurse for 15 years. You know, so we wanted to make sure that we got her because we knew just how invaluable her experience in the hospice realm, but also on that side, you know, like she, she understands that. So we need all that because ultimately it's, it's really not about the numbers. I mean, it's about these residents. And if you think about it for these residents, this is, it's not my home, it's their home. It's their, and sometimes many times it's their last home, you know, that they, that they enter. Uh, Like most of these residents, you know, unfortunately, but it is what it is, but they leave the home when they pass, you know, but we want to give them that loving, compassionate home. And you can't have that without that team that's, that's, you know, happy and enthusiastic to be there. So many business pearls. Mm-hmm. Um, I just came out of a four, four day MBA yesterday with Keith Cunningham and you've echoed so much of what he iterated as, you know, a guy who's bought businesses over the last 60 years and, um, and run them. So thank you for sharing all those pearls, but then also the component of, you know, as physicians, we go into medicine to help people and how fulfilling that is that you're making such a difference at people's ends of lives and delivering such an incredible product that, that, you know, helps elevate their quality of life. So amazing. We're so excited to hear this. Well, a question that we ask all of our guests, uh, we have two questions. Uh, the first one is, what is your definition of rich? So rich is essentially, I mean, rich is not money, but rich is having the time to do the time and freedom and flexibility to do what you want. You know, I see, and, and I kind of had this awakening a couple of years ago because I worked for a very busy cardiologist very, and it was just endless, right? You do more, you continuously do more. But then I realized like, he's the one that was making all the money and I had very little time at the end of the day. And I saw, and then, but it wasn't like he was even enjoying his money. Like, you know, he's in his sixties and he's taking STEMI call alongside me. He's running around to hospitals on, on his call weekends. And I'm like, you know, why is he doing that at that age? And I just started looking around at these doctor's lounges and you just see everyone has that same frustrated look. They all look ticked off. They're all pissed about the politics of the hospitals and the politics of the nation. And I'm like, I just don't want to go down this pathway, you know? So that's why. It's, and then I realized like, you know, it's like, you're not going to make money in medicine. Why don't you educate yourself and figure out different ways to make money? Let that be your income, but do what you love. You know, I don't want to give up doing cardiology. Like I do a ton of different real estate. I'll be fine doing that, but that's, you know, but that's not where I get my like, real sense of gratitude. You know, I love doing bedside medicine. I mean, I hate STEMI call, but after I do it, I feel like wonderful, you know, like I feel gratified doing something that 
you know, so that's what I wanted to do. So that's, so you have to figure out what, what makes you tick and what's your why and how do you get there, right? Why and how I think is very important. Awesome. What is one mindset, habit, or strategy that separates someone who is rich versus someone who is poor? I think really like uh, something I've learned is this abundance mindset versus a scarcity mindset. And unfortunately, I see it all the time. I think, uh, you know, I feel like physicians really have a, a lot of physicians that, you know, don't think outside of what they're doing, have this very scarcity mindset, you know, which unfortunately translates to them getting overworked, being used and abused and just feeling burnt out, you know. So having this mindset that, hey, there's better ways of doing things if I just give myself the chance. You know, I think I think it's incredible, like how physicians can be so brave as a community and do such incredible things. Like, you know, we have surgeons, we have neurosurgeons, we have, you know, whatever it is, right? They're, they're doing such fantastical things that the general public would ball cap. But then you ask them to buy a single family home and then they're like, oh, my God, but am I going to have to manage it like tenants like I'm like, are you kidding me? You just didn't, you know, you just did an endoscopy. You just tricked that guy. You just like, you know, you just did CPR. I mean, like, put this into perspective. This is nothing. Like, you can do this, but you just, you just have to get educated. And once you get educated, you'll understand that this is nothing scary. This is not luck. This is a skill you can acquire. Anyone can do this, you know, especially you. Like, you know, you guys are doctors. You guys are trained so hard. Don't, don't get disgruntled don't get like you know if you want to be a doctor stay a doctor you know i like you know i want people to enjoy what they do but make your money somewhere else you know figure out a different way you know you can leverage your experience in so many different ways standing ovation over yeah, here yeah, yeah sure. man yeah. love it well love your passion <laughs> love your mission uh everything you're doing is awesome we just need we definitely need more people doing this i mean they're like you said there's a lot of mom and pop operators uh there's so much good yeah i mean don't get me wrong i'm not trying to say that they're they're wonderful people yeah they're dedicated servants to their to their residents you know they've been living there for years but this is just another way that doctors can come help their community mm-hmm. and I, i'm going to tell you there's nothing more gratifying than walking into a home and seeing residents there and they're doing their own stuff you know like my only regret is I wish I was able to do that out here in Orange County. I would be there like every other day, you know, hanging out with them and like chilling, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. So how can people get a hold of you? Oh, sure. So our website is mdseniorliving.com. But if they just want to reach out to me directly, they can uh, they can email me at info at mdseniorliving.com or sendhill, S-E-N-D as in David, H-I-L-K for Krishnan at mdseniorliving.com. So a couple of different ways. Check out some posts on bigger pockets, like if you really want to get started. I put some great information on on how to really start looking for your own homes in your communities. If you guys are interested in joining us, let us know. We'd be happy to have more physician partners. But, you know, I certainly the the need is everywhere, you know. So there's a statistic out there, 10,000 people are turning 65 every day. That's 4 million every year. So there's already a huge housing crisis. So we need more of these homes to take care of these seniors as they get into into these facilities in their 70s and 80s. So looking for a long-term horizon strategy, this is a great niche to be in because for the next 10, 20 years, there's going to be a huge demand for this. Yep. Amazing. 
Amazing. Thank you so much for joining us. We learned a ton. Appreciate it. Thank you guys. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. You guys do some tremendous work and I love following you guys. Thank you. The Doctors Building Wealth podcast provides information only and does not provide any financial, legal, tax, medical, or psychological services or advice. You are responsible for your own financial, physical, mental, and emotional well-being, decisions, choices, actions, and results. You should contact a professional if you have any specific questions about your unique situation.